This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining yet another episode of Behind the Line, the Super Retriever Series podcast. I'm your host, David Hamilton, and today I have the pleasure to speak with Mike Gibson, one of the top amateur handlers in the Super Retriever Series. Mike, thanks for joining us here today on the podcast. My pleasure, David. Uh, looking forward to it. So uh, a lot of people probably know you as one of the top amateurs in, in SRS. You've, you've been the top performing amateur in the crown three different times, but uh, what a lot of people may not know about you is you've been in this game for, for quite a while, thirty uh, coming up on 30 years, right? So you got started around 1990-ish uh, with some hunt tests and field trials. So take us back. What got you interested into this game, and, and why have you stuck with it for 30 years? Well, you know, I'll go back a little bit farther than that, David. Um, I was a sophomore in college in 1982 playing baseball for a Division One powerhouse, and um, my father suddenly passed away. And kind of changed our life a little bit. Uh, we always wanted a lab and never could afford one. And I got a little bit of money from Social Security Administration. And my mother, and at the time my girlfriend, has now been my wife for 30-plus years, we took off for Minnesota, and uh, I bought a started lab. And um, I had no idea what started really even meant, to be honest with you. And I brought home my first lab, and, and it went to college with me, and I got in a little bit of trouble because the groundskeeper was helping me hide it in in a spare locker room. And um, uh, But nevertheless, I, I had my first lab, and I knew nothing about how to train. I started getting my hands on every publication I could find because back in that era, believe it or not, the Internet didn't exist. So... Uh, I, I was scrounging around trying to find everything in the world I could possibly find to read to learn about how to train a dog. And so um, a little bit later, I went to my first hunt test just to observe, and uh, my eyes were really opened. I, I just thought I had a good dog, and I looked out there and saw dogs doing things that my dog couldn't do. 
So that just prompted me to even further start studying like crazy to try to figure out how I could learn how to have my dog be at a level where it could compete at the master hunt test level. So, you know, that's where my real competition years started. And, and, uh, I was able to get my second dog, um, and start comp- competing in the hunt test world. And, um, was able to achieve a master title on her by the time she was three years old. And, and from there I was just, you know, I was just hooked. I have been immersed in it ever since trying to talk to everybody I could talk to, watch everything I could watch to try to find and be as good as we can possibly be to have a chance to compete at the highest levels. And, uh, so when you were originally training that dog you had back in college, was, were you just trying to train that dog from like a behavioral standpoint, like basic commands, or were you trying to train the dog for hunt tests and field trials? Or was that something that just kind of happened by, by circumstance? Well, I, I wasn't trying to train for hunt tests or field trials because I had never even seen a hunt test or a field trial. So I was trying to train that dog for duck hunting. I, I've always been an avid duck hunter and, uh, I was trying to train that dog for, uh, duck hunting. So, um, I didn't actually, like, again, to be honest, I was a, a naive young man that, uh, was an avid waterfowler and an athlete and didn't even know field trials or hunt tests existed at that time. How does your own background as an athlete, you think, help you over the years to help these dogs? Because they are athletes as well. So you have that kind of athlete mentality that maybe some of your competitors don't. Has that given you an advantage as you've learned to be a better handler? I absolutely believe it does. Um, one of the things that, that I learned from sports, um, to be at the highest level, I mean, I was an all state basketball player, an all state baseball player, and, um, you know, to get to that level, the, the number of hours that you have to put in at, at your craft to perfect as much as you could perfect, um, also fell over into the dog world. I really only know how to do things one way, and that's try to be really good at it. And uh, and so the second thing from an athletic standpoint is, you know, the average fan sees the finished product out on the field, much like I think our, our Super Retriever Series fans sees the result that is that is aired on TV or on live stream. They, they see the finished product. What they don't see is all the countless hours that go in behind the scenes where, uh, in order to achieve that long per- poison bird blind with many traps in there is how to break that down into small pieces and work on all the little pieces that, to, so that you can get the big result. Uh, and the sports is the same way. It's all broken down into little pieces. And you work on those little pieces, um, over and over and over again, repetition wise. And then when you put it all together, you're able to handle the big stuff. So I, I, I am, I'm a big fan and, and a big drills guy. I do a lot of drills with my dogs where we break down the fundamentals that's required to be successful and do it in little pieces at a time over and over and over again. That's fascinating. Um, and, and thinking about your training. So we know that you kind of have, like you said, trying to get them in that muscle memory or trying to break it down into pieces before they go to the, to the larger task at hand. What's it like being an amateur trainer? Because I know in talking to the pros, this is what these guys, you know, they live and breathe it. They wake up, they do it for a living. You're mm-hmm. an accountant. I believe you've been on the school board. You've also been heavily involved at your church. So 
you're a guy that wears three or four different hats and, and dog handlers only one of those three or four. So how do you find the time to train and how's that fit into your schedule, having a, a full-time job, some other commitments, and then still wanting to just be the best you can in this game? Well, the, the, the time, the time commitment is very challenging. And, um, you know, I am constantly looking for places to train. Every time I drive and go anywhere, I'm, I'm, I'm scouting. I'm not thinking about accounting. Uh, I'm thinking about dogs and I'm, I'm looking for places to train that, that would allow me to better myself and my dogs. Um, you know, I, I put in a lot of extra time at it. Maybe I sleep less than some other people does, but I, you know, I'm up, uh, before, you know, right at the crack of dawn at daylight and I'm out doing drills when the, when the daylight hours allow, I'm doing things before I go to the office. Uh, three to four days a week, I take my dogs with me to the office and on my lunch hour, uh, rather than eat, uh, I go to a couple different local parks that are nearby. And I, I do more drills, you know, and then I come home of an evening and depending on the daylight hours and what all's on the schedule, I may train as soon as I get home from work or I may have to attend to other duties and then train later in the evening. So, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a real balancing act time wise, but you know, I'm, I'm doing it before I go to the office. I'm doing it three to four days a week on my lunch break. And, you know, what comes out of that is just a, you know, a bond uh, because you're spending so much time with your dogs. And, and, you know, I think the, again, the average person who's only watching on TV really, really, really underestimates the amount of subtle communication that's going on at that line between the handler and the dog. And, you know, when you and that dog are on the same page and, and you're able to click that dog over just a little notch to the right or a little notch to the left and, and really be able to talk to that dog and have that dog understand what it is you're wanting to do. You know, it's just, it's indescribable and it doesn't happen overnight. They don't come out of the womb doing that. There is a lot of time spent with you and that dog of understanding one another. Yeah, that was my next question. How long, I mean, I know it varies every dog, but, but how many years are we talking from, from when you get a dog to when you feel confident that you can go out there and compete at a high level in an SRS event or, you know, at, at some other kind of event? At what point, how much training is needed for you to really feel like you and that dog have done enough time together out testing that now it's time when they, when they go to the line that you feel confident they can do a good job? Well, again, I think that depends on your level of experience as a, as a handler and trainer. And I think it just depends on the quality of animal that you have. Um, and, and I don't know that you're ever fully prepared for what they might throw at you at these events. But, you know, I, I ran my first SRS after watching, uh, the great ESPN great outdoor games and was amazed at what those dogs could do. And I would watch them over and over again. And, um, uh, I, I, you know, you, you think you have a good dog and you think that you can go do something like that. And the only way you're going to know whether you can or you can't is show up and see what happens. And the, the very first all amateur event that was held by the SRS was in Mayflower, Arkansas, I believe in 2008. And, uh, there was 53 dogs in that. There were three very distinguished pros judging that. 
And uh, my dog at the time was a little female named Shady. And, um, you know, we did really well. We made it through to the finals. Six dogs make it to the finals. And we got fourth place and, you know, just uh, just missed an opportunity to go to the crown that year. And then all of a sudden, you know, I looked at the level of competition that was competing in that event and, and how we fared in that event and said, you know, we can do this. I, I can do this. And the very next year, you know, Shady made it all the way to the crown and was a top finishing amateur there. And um, it was a unique experience because it, up until the last dog run, I think it was Chris Aiken up to the last dog run, um, we were going to be in the finals, which was almost unheard of for an amateur to make it to the finals at that point in time. And, um, you know, we wouldn't have been able to stayed because I'm president of the school board and my youngest daughter's high school graduation was that day. So, you know, we took our shot, we took our swing in the semifinals and good, bad or ugly, we loaded up and, and headed back for home so I could be in home in time for graduation. But to, to answer your question, I guess that's a long story, but to answer your question is, I don't, I don't know that there's a black and white time frame. You just have to judge what your dog is doing when you go to a hunt test. Are you barely surviving? Uh, or are you one of the top dogs? Are you one of the top performers at that hunt test? You know, are you, are, are you nearly flawless out there at what you're doing or are you scraping to get by? If you're scraping to get by, you're probably not quite ready yet. Uh, if you are really just breezing through that stuff, um then then you you have an opportunity to 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 compete in this game yeah i wanted to talk about that you were talking about shady back in 2009 and you hit on a good point there that that back in those days the amateurs and pros didn't compete separately it was just kind of everyone in in one competition amateurs were obviously allowed to compete but there was not an amateur class if you will so you were competing against the pros so what was that experience like for you well to be honest with you since the day I got into this game in the SRS game, because that's the way it was, my sights were always set to be able to compete with those guys. I mean, you know, the, the, the Lyle Steinmans and the Steven Durances and the Bobby Wills and Scott Greers and Chris Aiken and, uh, you know, Clint Johnson, those were all guys that were J. Paul Jackson, those were all guys that were uh, consistently successful at the SRS, and I knew that if we were going to have success, that's who we had to that's who we had to compete against, and we had to have a chance to be as good as them. So my my sights and my goals was always up there with those guys, and to be able to prove that we could run with those guys and compete with those guys, and to you know to gain their respect, and and um, so you know. You had no choice back in those days that they had the one all amateur event. And after that, it was, it was everybody in one hat and see who comes out on top. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate that we were in the mix, you know, just about every time we went. So, um, you know, it meant a lot to earn those guys respect in this game. And you've not only earned those guys respect over the years, but you, you've never been shy to ask the pros for the advice. Um, so, so guys like Lyle or, or Steven or Bobby or Chris, any mm-hmm. of those guys, Jay Paul, Scott, what's some of the mm-hmm. advice they gave you over the years that you were able to take back and do in your own training and then, you know, be able to utilize that? Oh gosh. You know, those guys, and I, and I probably left a few names out, but those guys, they, they probably get tired of me bugging them because 
I'm usually in their hip pocket at all these events and, and we're watching every single dog run and we're discussing, you know, we're discussing and I'm picking their brain. What would you do right there? Would you do this or would you do that? Or, you know, how, how do you get that dog to take that cast and carry it that far? You know, well, here's, you know, here's some drills that, that I do. Well, how do you do that drill? Tell me more about that. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll have to say for any of those people who are, are wanting to get into this game, um, I have yet to meet anybody at the SRS that wasn't willing to help, help you. Even though you're out there competing with them, uh, and against them, I, I have not run into anyone yet that would not help me with everything, anything that I wanted to know. And, and I try to do the same thing with any newcomers into the game. If, if they, you know, you know, I'm not the expert, you know, those guys are the experts, but, but anybody that asked me at one of those events, I'll do everything I can to try to help them because I, I wouldn't ha have had the success that I've had if it weren't for those guys. They have, they have been all along and they still are today, uh, very helpful. And, and I consider every one of them friends and, and, um, but it's just, David, I don't know that I can pinpoint any one thing because it's, it's constant. You know, there's been so many things, you know, you know, do you, do you wear your white jacket on this or do you wear your black jacket? Why do you think black is better? Why do you think white is better? Um, you know, would you get this bird second or would you get that bird second and why? You know, I'm always bugging them. Why? Why, why do you I always want to know why you would do it that way? So that helps me understand their, they're thinking, you know, they're, they're, they're the real experts. It's not me. I, I'm just a, I'm just a student of the game and, uh, they're the, they're the teachers. Well, you've been pretty impressive here the last few years for sure. So I don't know. I, I'd, I'd probably say you're, you're pretty much a master at this game as well at this point. Um, that's awesome though, that, that they've given you advice and that you've, you've also chosen to, to pay it forward to some others. One advantage that an amateur handler may have, you were talking a few minutes ago, obviously amateur handlers have to try to figure out how to fit it into their schedule. You know, when can you train? You were telling us you train in the mornings, you train at lunch, you train after work sometimes. But one of the advantages that, that amateur handlers may have over the pros is they only have to train one or two or three dogs, not 20, 30, 40. So that's correct. Talk to us about the relationship you have with your dogs. I know that you've always tried to have, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like no more than two dogs at a time because you want to give them the most uh, attention that you can. What's that relationship like? Do these dogs live in your house? They're your pets? Just just tell us about that if you could. Well, you know, I hunt with my dogs, you know. Um, I spend so much time with my dogs, and I care for them like they're, they are top-notch athletes. Um um, you know, they, I ask a lot of them and they give me a lot. And so I want to do my absolute best to take care of them in the best manner that I can. But, you know, we're in the house with each other. Uh, a lot of times when we travel to events, they're staying in the hotel room with us. Um, you know, I, I have a four-year-old grandson right now. That's just such a joy to take with us when everything we do along this game from training to feeding them every day and, you know, to be able to teach him, you know, the ins and outs of this stuff, hoping that he loves the game one day. Um, but, but all of that builds a camaraderie with the dogs. And, and to your point, because of my profession and, and, um, I'm a, I'm a father and a grandfather and I'm still pre been on the school board for 24 years. I think it is, um, you know, time is, is important. And, you know, the dogs are just with me every step of the way. And, um, 
you know, you do just build this bond. I, I only have time to do two to three dogs and really do a good job with it. And, and that's what I have. Um, I would love to have more, but I simply can't do it justice by, you know, I want, I, again, I want to always be able to do a good job and I want to give my dogs the best opportunity they can to be successful. So, um, you know, if, if I have a problem or I have a, a, a dog that, and I need a little work on this area, you know, I can really work on that area a few times. Whereas the pros, you know, they do have a, a truck full of dogs and, and, uh, you know, they may not be able to point their finger at a problem and sit there and iron it out in that training session where, you know, I think an amateur has the ability to sit there and, and really work on something uh, that's been maybe an issue. And um, so to some degree, we, we may have an advantage because we can do that. Um, whereas the pros, you know, they, they, they have to put that dog up and move on to the next dog or they're going to run out of time. And so, uh, to, to some degree, sometimes we might have an advantage of that, but on the other hand, they see so many different dogs and, and they see so many different behaviors and it's a lot easier for them to recognize, oh, I've seen this before and I know exactly what to do. And, and sometimes, you know, us amateurs don't, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing is creating the problem, you know? Um, so it's, uh, it, there, there are advantages for both sides. For sure. Is there anything you do to let your dogs know, okay, now it's time to go to work, right? Like, and I don't mean go to work like your accounting job, but like go to work, yeah. it's time to go out here and train. Is there anything that you do so that they know, oh, okay, now, now I'm not just sitting here on, on the floor by his side while he's watching TV or while he's at work. Now it's my turn to go out and we're going to the field. Is there, is there any trick you do or they just know when you go out there to those the, you fields know, near your office that know. it's time? When that, when that, when that door opens, whether it be the door on the dog box or whether it be the, the, the back door at my house, um, or if I grab my training jacket or if I grab my whistle, um, they know, uh, if they're out, if they happen to be out in the kennel and, and I start that Polaris Ranger up, uh, it's on. I mean, they, they will, sometimes they don't even wait for me to get the tailgate open before they've leaped up in there. Um, and they're ready to go. I mean, they, that's what makes it such a pleasure. I've been, I've been very blessed to have some really good dogs and, you know, I, I, from the time I get them at six or seven weeks old, I, I know what the end result is that I'm trying to achieve, and we start trying to uh, groom that dog for that end result from the day that I bring them home. And they they just grow up not knowing any different. I mean, they just know. They know it's time and it's it's on. And you know, you could you can set a bowl of dog food down and you can throw a bumper, and I guarantee you, what every one of my dogs is going after first. You know. They're heading for a bumper before they eat the food. You know, they would rather do that than eat. So, uh, <laughs> it you know, I, I have to really be careful, especially I live in Kansas and we can get some pretty hot, humid summers. Um, I got to be pretty careful sometimes to not overdo it because I don't think I've ever had one yet that that what didn't want more. No matter what we have done, they didn't that they wanted more, you know, so. That's awesome. It's a nice problem to have, but like you said, you do have to watch it to make sure they don't get overheated. Speaking of your dogs, yeah. let's talk about them one by one. Let's talk about Shady first. Like you said, 2009, you knew you weren't going to be able to compete in the finals if you had made it, but you were so close. Just just tell us about that dog if you could. Well, Shady was, uh, you know, she was my first real animal that I really, really stepped up and bought out of a really high-quality breeding. I mean, her dad was a national champion, 
And, um, you know, I was hoping to get just what I got, you know, a, a dog that, that, uh, really, really, really had some genetics that, that would give me an opportunity to do well. And, um, Shady was a small female that, that just had the heart of a lion. And, um, you know, she, uh, you know, she, she just, um, she was just really special because she didn't, she didn't behave like a lot of female dogs, which sometimes can be a little moody or sometimes, you know, when, you know, they, Shady, all Shady ever wanted to do was work and please me. And from the time I had her as a seven week old puppy, you know, she, she was special. She, you could throw a mark down the hallway of our house. You could throw a, a sock or something and, and it didn't matter what was between her and that sock. She went straight to it up over whatever she had to go up and over. She went straight to it and her, her eyes never came off that mark. You know, she just had this desire in her to go get it, you know, and, um, you know, for such a small little female to, to jump in there and run with some of the big dogs that she ran with and, and succeeded with, you know, she was just, uh, she was just really special, you know. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to cough there. Um, all right, man, that's awesome. Uh, let's talk about another one of your dogs. You told us earlier in the podcast you played baseball in college, so it should not surprise anybody in the world that you have a, a dog name, uh, after a baseball athlete. I think anyone familiar with the, Super Retriever Series knows your dog Jeter, and Jeter was the uh, best amateur in the crown in 2015, and you've competed for several years with Jeter and now have uh, retired Jeter. So uh, just tell us about that relationship as well. Well, again, Jeter, uh, you know, I kind of stepped out of the boundaries a little bit and um, brought home a chocolate dog. And, um, you know, I looked long and hard to find a really, and for, for several, several months to really find what I thought was a, a very high quality chocolate dog because they were simply hard to come by at that time. And, um, Jeter turned out that, that you know, I, I may have picked the one, but, um, uh, Jeter was, I think I had the third pick on the males out of that litter. And so, you know, I don't know that I can pick a dog, but I sure know him when I know one when I see it. And, uh, Jeter the same way. Here's a dog that all, all he wants to do is please. Um, and I know that, you know, most all of us in this game use the e-collars as part of our training tools. And, um, you know, I, I believe you could hook Jeter up to 220 and he, he might roll him and he would come up smiling and happy and say, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. You know, you, you, I've, I've never seen the dog with dampened spirits. I've never seen him with dampened spirits. I don't care what kind of pressure you put on him. Uh, he's just eager to say, okay, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. And, uh, you know, I almost lost Jeter. Most people don't know this, but, uh, the year before he won the crown, uh, the, the summer before that, that same year in 2015, um, we were training in mid July. And, uh, again, I told you about how it is in Kansas and he was coming back from a retrieve one evening and I noticed him wobbling and couldn't hardly stand up. And I got in the ranger and, and ran, you know, ran out to him and picked him up and put him in the back of my ranger. And I was less than three minutes from my house. And by the time we got home, he couldn't even lift his head and I just was sure he had heat stroke. And, um, you know, we, we quickly threw him in a little pool of, of ice water or cool water to try to cool him down. And, and he was so, um, out of it. He couldn't even hold his head. If I didn't hold his head up out of the water, he would have drowned. 
and uh, we went to an emergency vet. Uh, turned out it was not heat stroke. I was re very relieved about that because I was just sure it was my fault. And uh, it turned out he had Ehrlichia, which is a tick-borne disease that had no idea that he had. And uh, within a couple of days, you know, he was fine. And, uh, you know, we had to baby him for a little while, and, and he was right back at it. And we won the crown that year in, in you know, in pretty impressive fashion. But I was scared to death I lost him, you know. Wow. Yeah, um, I never knew that. So I'm sure some of your other competitors never knew that. But, no. Uh, Wow, remarkable that you were able to to like you said save him and and then for him to be able to to win the crown that's just a, a fantastic achievement. Um let's talk about Trig. Trig won uh, amateur in the crown this past year 2019. So uh mm -hmm. Trig is now kind of the bell of the ball if you will. So tell us about that dog. Well, Trig was a dog that uh, my daughter and uh son-in-law was ready to get their first lab and I found a breeding that I really really liked um and I told them they had one one male dog left. We didn't get to do any picks. We just this is what was left. And and by the way, that's the way Shady was. When I got Shady, I, I was looking for a yellow female. And that particular breeding, the yellow females had already been taken, but there was one black female left. And so she was the last one of the litter, and that's what I got. And she was fantastic, you know. So uh, Trig was the same way. Uh, he was the last pick of the litter, and. Um, uh, they sent him to me and, and, and I told my kids that if you guys don't buy this dog, I'm going to. So they bought it and, and, and I've done all the training with it and it's been a really neat experience because my daughter, uh, grew up around this game. And, you know, now my son-in-law and my daughter, they're my training buddies every day. They, they, they go out with me and throw marks and, and do whatever we need them to do. And, and, um, but Trig, has again just been one of those special dogs um from early on he had a lot of talent a lot of potential there were days when he looked like a million dollars when he was younger and there was days when it's like i don't know if he's ever going to get it and we were questioning whether that was the right dog or not whether we whether we had the dog that we wanted to be able to play in the game and then uh, uh about the time he turned oh 12 14 months old the lights came on suddenly, and he has just been a monster ever since. I mean, he, he can flat out mark. Um, he wants to do nothing but go get it. And uh, he's an extremely good marking dog. And, um, you know, he just, um, he again, he's just a very special dog. I feel like every time we go to the line, you know, we, we have a chance to win because he, he's simply that good. You know, we, we may never win again, but... He is, uh, he's a dog that you're going to ha have a chance to, to be right there in the end every time you go to the line. As a handler, what's it like to win the crown? For those that have maybe competed or for those who are just watching on TV and they're like, man, I'd love to do that. As the, as the guy who has been the amateur crown champion, what's that like for you? Well, you know, I, I've won state championships in, in high school sports. Um, you know, we, we, I've won some pretty big ball games in collegiate baseball. Um, but I tell you, you know, winning the crown is, it's very humbling and, and it's, and it's also very overwhelming because everything that I do in a year's time is to, is to prepare for the crown. And once you get there, the competition is so good that the handlers are so good. The dogs are so good. Um, and I don't care how much you think you've thought of to prepare for. 
the judges seem to always find things that you've never even thought of before, and now you have to step to the line and see if you can handle it. And uh, at the end of the day, when you're when you're the when you're the winner, it, it's just very um, you know you you you'll see this year that it's just very emotional for me um, to to know that all of our hard work has paid off, and that that this animal and I have come together at the right time to do it better than anybody else for a brief period. Um, it, it's just, it's it just exhilarating and overwhelming. And, and at the same time, very, very, very humbling because I respect the other people in the game so much. And to, to know that we came out on top when we were all standing there together is just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just indescribable. And, and then it also fuels the fire for as soon as that event is over to come back and start preparing for next year. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. So speaking of the future, still got Trig out there competing. Uh, any other dogs that you are uh, training these days that, that we may see competing in the Super Retriever Series? Uh, I, ha I have a three-year-old uh, uh, black female right now who just happened to have a litter of puppies that um, is, is, is the next dog that I'm going to be swinging with. I would have started running this year, but... Uh, a, she came into heat and we decided to breed her. And B, this COVID-19 stuff has kind of put the brakes on a lot of things for a while. Um, but Molly is her name, and uh, she is a very talented retriever that uh, I think we're going to have a chance to have success with. And then I also have a yellow male that is uh, very well bred that is coming along really, really nicely. But he doesn't turn a year old until um, until mid-May. So, uh, you know, we later this summer or maybe this fall, we'll be running derbies and, and, uh, and, and getting ready for qualifying events. And, and typically what I like to do, David, is I like to prepare my dogs for the, the, the field trial qualifying, uh, events. And then once we have that under our belt, then, then our attention turns to the SRS. So, um, I do have, I do have two more in the pipeline that I think is going to have a chance to, give us success in the near future. And one of, one of them was ready to start swinging at it uh, now. And the other one will be ready to start swinging at it in another year or two. So by the time Trig, uh, by the time Trig hits the end of his rope, uh, hopefully we'll ha I'll have two more ready to start going again. Wow, man. Yeah. And a lot of success in the past and sounds like you've got, like you said, a pipeline for maybe some continued success in the future. Before we let you go here, it's been great. We've loved talking to you, Mike. We always end uh, behind the line with four questions, kind of rapid fire for you. So uh, when I say Super Retriever Series, what's the first dog that comes to mind? Could be one of yours, could be one of someone else's. Just who's the first dog when I say SRS? Dude. Why is that? Uh, you know, you, you sit here and compete against these guys and, and, and you watch – yeah, and I'd really have to say dude and, and river, you know, two dogs, Lyle Steinman's river and, and Steven Durance's dude. I mean, they're just, uh, I, I, you know, it's kind of one of those things, I guess, if you was a pro basketball player and you, you're growing up watching, uh, LeBron, then you find yourself standing out there competing with him one day. That's still LeBron, you know, uh, those guys are guys that I grew up watching and watching their dogs, uh, just be do do incredible things up there. And then it's, it's, uh, you know, you have to pinch yourself sometimes to say, I'm standing here at the line with them and, 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 and actually going toe to toe with them. So, uh, those two dogs that were very, very, very consistent at, at the top of the game in this SRS thing for a long time. 
Somebody must have given you a cheat sheet because my second question when we ask who's the dog that comes to mind is if that dog was a human athlete, what sport would he or she play and why? So you answered that for dude and river. Let's let's then let's switch that question up a little bit. Let's take your own dog, Trig. Trig was a human athlete. What sport would he play and why? Well, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a uh, I'm a baseball guy. Actually, I like all sports, but I believe that the basketball players are the best physically fit and the best athletes out there, given what they're asked to do. Um, and uh, so, ha- having said along those lines, you know, uh, I think Trigg would have been a fine NBA player because you know he has a level of toughness, he has a level level of physicality about him. But yet he has a burst of speed about him. Um, he ha- he has a um, you know just a boldness about him that uh, says I-, I I will jump in the ring and 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 compete with anybody. And um, and you know I I think he would be a, a really fine NBA basketball player. Awesome. Now last two final questions uh, in the rapid fire are about you, the handler. If you have one word to describe yourself, what would it be and why? Well, um, I would have, I would have to say, you know, it's probably two words, but it's one term, hardworking. You know, I, I think I, uh, I think I work my tail off and, and I'm not going to compare myself to any other amateur because I know that everybody works their tails off, but, um, I literally eat, drink and sleep how, how to be better, uh, at this game. And, uh, and I, and I, I forego a lot of sleep and get up a lot of early mornings when most maybe other people are sleeping in uh, to get out there and do as much as I can do before my family gets up and around and to take so I don't take away as, you know, I take away as little as possible from family time and my other obligations. And it's just a, um, I, I think, just hardworking and, it, and it's just a prolonged thing of hardworking. It's not a one year, a one year run at it. You know, it's it's been several years now. Like I say, I've been very fortunate to have the top finishing amateur dog three out of the last 10 years. And, and it was very close, you know, shady made it to the semifinals a couple of two or three times. And, uh, Jeter has made it, you know, to the semifinals probably three or four times. Um, you know, and so, um, is it just, just hard work and, and, um, dedication to being better. Awesome. Final question for you. I know your day job's an accountant, but we all know you as a, as an SRS dog handler, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh boy. Um, to be honest with you, a professional dog trainer. That's awesome. So, Why? Uh, it's just something I, I thoroughly love to do. I enjoy the training. I, 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 you know, I, I get these dogs as six and seven week old puppies and it's my, my mission to, to get them to that finish line. And, and I don't do it by myself. You know, I, I have uh, sent dogs out the, you know, Again, I'm in Kansas and in, and in the wintertime, it's dark when I go to work and it's dark when I come home and our water is either too cold to train in or it's frozen. And, and I love to hunt as much as I can on the weekends. And, you know, if you've got an advanced dog, you might be able to, I can get away with, I, I hunt them, you know, I, my dogs hunt and, um, we, uh, we, they get, that's when they get to have fun, you know, is, is when we hunt. And, uh, in fact, this past year, uh, it was kind of funny because Jeter was almost 11 years old. And, uh, 
Stephen Durrance got to swing through here and we went on a hunt together and he cracked up laughing because Jeter broke, you know, at nearly 11 years old, he still couldn't, couldn't stand it. He had to go, you know, um, but, uh, um, you know, we, uh, it's just, it's just fun. I enjoy the training. I enjoy seeing the dogs progress and, you know, I don't beat it into the dogs or anything. I was thinking about it, seeing my dogs run to see how happy they are at it. But there's critical times in the dog's training when it, I, I can't do much and you can't let them sit around for two or three or four months and not do anything. And so I, I have sent my dogs off many times to, to, to pros over the winter months to help me, uh, help me when they're at that critical stage. You know, that dog's a year old or that dog's nine months old or that dog might be 15 months old and we hit winter and, and I can't afford to let them sit around for two or three months while waiting on conditions right to train. So. I'll be the first to tell you, don't, don't, you know, don't give me all the credit. I, I don't, I haven't done this all by myself. I've, I've gotten periodic help from some really good guys out there. Well, you are a humble man, but you're also, I can say on behalf of everyone at SRS, also a very accomplished handler. So don't sell yourself short, Mike, but, uh, we, we do yeah. love watching you compete with all these dogs and, and, and we're just so glad you were able to join us here today on Behind the Lines. So just really want to thank you for being a guest on our podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And, and, uh, I just love what, uh, Shannon has done with the SRS. And, um, I hope that we are able to compete at that high level for a long time to come. Uh, that makes two of us, man. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Uh, that makes two of a life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. Oh, mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.